today we're kicking off a new sermon series. I'm, I'm hoping that you've got a study guide. We're back into study guides again and we'll be making these available each week um, through this particular sermon series. An opportunity for you to reflect on uh, this particular sermon and, and passage, but also for a number of our growth groups that will follow the sermon series. This becomes the guide for that as, as well. So here we are uh, looking at 1 Samuel. How about we start at 1 Samuel 1? What a great place to start. Now, some of you have already flipped through those passages and you go, hang on, I don't see any mention of, of David. Uh, have you got the right passage, John? And I'm going, yes, I've got the right passage. We're going to talk about the, the foundations of what God puts in place leading up to uh, David being born. And so um, this is where we're going to be the, the next couple of weeks. We're just going to be looking at some of God's sovereign work even before David uh, has uh, been born. And also I want to let you know that we've, we've, we've called this sermon series After God's Own Heart. Some of you may know why we, we titled that because that was actually um, referred to of David uh, in, in 1 Samuel, a man after God's own heart and we our, our prayer is that uh, we will also get a heart for God a deeper heart for God through this sermon series now when when we think of David David of the Old Testament is there a particular story that comes to mind David David and Goliath would, would you say that that's probably one of the the, the, the top stories and we're gonna we're gonna pick that up in a few weeks time the story of David and Goliath I think I've got a little image up here of of uh, David and, well it's not exactly David and Goliath um, but you ever notice that the story of David and Goliath it, it, it becomes ingrained even within our own society doesn't it and I find particularly in in sports when you've got a, a team of underdogs playing a champion team and when the the underdogs beat the champion team it, the, the commentators will say it's a it's a David and Goliath story. Now, the commentators may not even know what the story is all about or the 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 the, 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 the the meaning behind the story but we we see so much of what is ingrained within our society uh, whether it's David and Goliath or other parts of this story and so we're going to discover over the next seven weeks um, who this David is what God did in and through him and how we can learn as we look at uh, a man of God so we're going to look up at, at a story in 1 Samuel chapter 1 verses 1 through to 20 I've actually called this story a woman and an impossible birth. A woman and an impossible birth. And we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 1 verses 1 through 2 to 20. Now, if you think about a, a woman and an impossible birth, this is probably not the only story in the Bible where there's a story of a, a woman and an impossible birth. Can you, can you think of others? Sarah, so Abraham and Sarah. Sarah couldn't have a child and God led him on a journey and it became a miraculous situation. It's part of God's unfolding plan. Any, any other stories? Mary, well, there's, there's a classic, isn't it? That uh, Mary would uh, birth the Saviour uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And there's others as well. So it seems that this is a bit of a common theme. And so we could ask the question, 
what is God teaching us when we hear stories and read stories like this? And today is, is no exception. It's a story about a woman named Hannah. And you're thinking, oh, so this is where David comes about. No, she doesn't give birth to David. She gives birth to Samuel. And Samuel is a, an instrumental person in the development of, of David, as we'll find out over the next few weeks. So, we're going one step back from David, back to Samuel. So how did Samuel come about, which leads to the story of David? So what we're going to do is we're going to read um, 1 Samuel 1, uh, through to 20. It's a fascinating little story leading up to the, uh, the, the, the biggest story of, of, of David. There was a certain man from Amrathane, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was uh, Elkanah, son of Jerome, the son of Elu, the son of Tohu, who probably had a brother called Tofu, just on the side, um, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. Elkanah had two wives uh, called Peninnah and Hannah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Now, before we go on to this, this is where uh, I guess a lot of people have some problems with the Old Testament. They go, well, this is not good, is it, for a man to have two wives on a number of levels? Um, sometimes, no, I won't go there, but having two wives, just think about that for a moment. But why would God allow that? And we've got to think in, in terms of this, that this was a culture at this time. This was quite common amongst a number of, of different cultures and, and people groups. doesn't make it right. It was just what it was at the time. So Peninnah had has children and Hannah has no children. Now, let's, let's go on a little bit further, starting from verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from the town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. So Elkanah was kind of in trouble. Not only has he got the two wives, um, one wife has, has children and the other has no children. And so He's trying to, to love them both and care for them both, but he kind of overcompensates and he gives Hannah a double portion of the meat. Now, some of you go, what, is he just trying to fatten her up or something? Um, no, but can you see that he, he, he feels for Hannah and so he's giving a, a double portion. He's blessing her uh, as much as he can, try, trying to keep the peace trying to keep the peace so how does this work out for Elkanah well let's go to verse 6 because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her now who is her rival and we, we can only then assume that it's Peninnah jealousy and and bitterness when we, we see in the word 
irritate. Uh, you could actually probably translate it closer to a, a, a firestorm within the household. Peninnah's got children, Hannah's got no children, but Hannah gets this double portion and, and Peninnah doesn't. So Hannah's jealous and, and, and there's, there's envy over here and there's bitterness and it's, it's, it's not a really good family environment. Would you agree? Let's continue on. Verse 7. This went on, think about this, this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I need more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and were drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Verse 11. She made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you'll only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. He's one of the priests. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant whatever you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her and in the course of time Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying because I asked the Lord for him. Fascinating story in the lead up to uh, the story of David. Now, now Hannah as you can see here is in great pain. She can't have children um, and, and that happens even today that there are certain um, uh, women who can't have children and, and that can be quite uh, well quite grief stricken but in those days there was absolutely no hope there was a great sense of hopelessness for women who couldn't have children having many children in those days was was deemed to be a uh, a blessing of prosperity you look at that today and it's almost like it's the opposite today the more children you have the less prosperous you'll be um yeah children cost your money by the way but back in those days back in those days children worked for you they and and children cared for you in your older age and so being no age care and no social security back in those days children were deemed to be a blessing who would care for you in your old age 
so having children think about that having children meant everything for women as a matter of fact an old testament scholar walter brueggemann said this in commentary on this he said in any ancient culture barrenness was a metaphor for hopelessness hopelessness so this is this is hannah's situation can can you get the picture here and think about that this is year after year after year now today there might might be so much of a focus and depending on who we're you know you're thinking about or whatever there's not so much a focus on having children maybe but we ascribe our value maybe not so much by the children we have to what do we ascribe our our value as and I'm going to suggest just four things I'm not going to spend too much time on it but think about this would you think that for most people, it may not be the people sitting in this building right now, but for most people, they would be money, status, beauty and health would be four values that we would ascribe, that our, our society would subscribe to say, if you've got those uh, attributes, that you would be valued within society. And therefore, if you're missing one or more of those that you could have a sense of being devalued and either uh, overtly or inadvertently you would be shunned by society now as a church we should right be at the forefront of those who are missing those attributes that's where the church should be but you would all agree that for those without money status beauty and and health can quite easily get discarded by society so we too like like hannah can build our value dependent upon uh, what we have or don't have now let's go back to the story what does Elkanah do to address the problem that Hannah doesn't have any children and let's go back to verse 5 think about this he overcompensates to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb Elkanah, uh, between a rock and a hard place, he is seeking to show love, but this doesn't solve the problem. In verse 8, Elkanah said, why are you crying? You're well fed. I mean, he's really on on, on a different frequency, isn't he? Doesn't quite, probably like a few husbands, um, don't quite get the core issue here. Why are you crying? Year after year, Hannah depressed and the passage brings us to a particular day now think about this this would have happened dozens and dozens of dozens of times this was before there was a temple because you remember that that sort of happened in in david and then solomon's time so this was before the time of the temple there were these local tabernacles and they would go up to a local tabernacle which is kind of like a, a church to pray Hannah prays on this particular day after years and years of torment, depression and difficulty and something changes. And so what I want to focus on today is what actually is it that changes on that particular day? And so what I want to do is focus particularly on verse 10 and 11 of 1 Samuel 1 where we, we, we read about Hannah's prayer. And I've got three things that I just want to focus in on Hannah's prayer. And the first one is this. 
Hannah prayed a prayer that was emotionally real. Emotionally real. Have a look at verse 10. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Weeping bitterly. It wasn't that she just had a down day. She felt her whole world had fallen apart. And bearing in mind she was so overwhelmed with emotion she couldn't even form words we we read in there where the the priest Eli is sort of come to the conclusion that she's drunk she's she's that overcome with emotion she can't even put words together now has that ever happened to you has that ever happened to you where you've been in such a a difficult state that you just don't know how to pray you don't know how to begin. You try to form words and words don't come out. Look, there's been a number of occasions for me and there's also been times when um, I've, I've been with a family just after they've lost a dear loved one and I, I gather with the family and the family say, in, 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 their, in their grief, they say, John, can you, can you pray for us? And you go to pray and you go... What, what words do you use? What do you say? And, and, and sometimes I've gone to pray and sometimes it's, it's just a mumbling or sometimes it's just awkward silence. It can get pretty embarrassing, particularly in a, in a group of people, but I'm sure whether you've been in a group of people or just on your own, has there been times when you just go, I am, I am so... I'm so emotionally overwhelmed, I don't know how to start my prayer. Any takers? Yep. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. I think God is far more interested in our heart than what comes out. What comes out can please Him, but I think He's far more interested in that awkward silence. God understands as a matter of fact later on we read in the new testament paul alludes to this in romans chapter 8 paul writes and he says in the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness we do not know what we ought to pray for but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans now a number of people have, uh, have said that this is really referring to the, uh, the, the gift of tongues. And look, it may touch on that, but I think the key and more to that is the fact that, and we, we read this passage, we say, the Spirit of God intercedes for us when we have no idea what to pray for. And that could simply be coming before God and just, just sobbing, praying, crying whatever if our attitude and our posture is coming before god he knows our weakness he knows our inability he assists us now let's go back to this story let's go back to the story with hannah as i said the priest comes up and says you're drunk you need to sober up 
she's not drunk she's just overcome with emotion now think about this for a moment it's the priest that's come up to Hannah and said you better sober up it probably says less about Hannah and more about the people who normally come up to the tabernacle to pray doesn't it people who come up and they sit or stand properly and they they use proper prayers and they they under understandable words that's probably more the indicator of the people who prayed in that particular tabernacle it's not the case for Hannah she's overcome with emotion now how do we deal how do we deal with emotion now I just want to briefly say that there's probably three ways that we can deal with the emotions that well up inside of us three briefly the first one is we can hold in our emotions can't we we don't let anybody know what's what's going on you know how you doing John I'm fine act proper now let me tell you there's probably a time and a place to hold in our emotions you know if you bump into someone down at the shopping center this afternoon and they ask how you're doing and you suddenly go Bleh, like that in the middle of the shop it may, may may or may not be the most appropriate time to let everything out so there's there's a there's a time to hold it in but the problem is quite often i think some of us are really good at holding them in all the time we bottle it up but the trouble is if we bottle it up and bottle it up and bottle it up there's a point at which we become full of emotion and it probably at the most inappropriate time it all comes out so i think we need to be able to handle our emotions in a proper way the second way if we don't going to hold on to our emotions the other one is just to, to vent our emotions i'm just going to let everybody know exactly how i'm feeling here comes john out of his way because i'm feeling really angry really depressed really frustrated i i don't care who's in my way i'm just going to let everybody know now that's not entirely appropriate either is it once again there's a time to, to to vent or let that out but there's sometimes we don't have any filter in all of that and we just let everybody know about everything that's going on and the problem is with venting what happens when you you vent a fire you know you start other fires and sometimes if you if you're not careful about when you vent and two and everything like that you can start other fires have you ever been in a situation like that let me let me suggest there's nothing wrong with holding in your emotions at, from time to time or venting from time to time let me offer a third one how about pray our emotions you know there's there's someone who is a a wonderful listener there's someone who cares more than we could ever ever understand someone who's there ready for us at any time of the day and we can come to him with all of our emotions and this is what hannah does hannah shows her emotions to god god is big enough to shoulder that we can't upset god's feelings it's not like god's sitting up there in heaven and going oh those people at lismore baptist church they hurt my feelings you know they blood all they shared all those sort of things god's not like that he invites us into that space he's more as i said before he's more interested in our heart more than what comes out of our mouth do you reveal your heart to god do you find he's the the safe place that you can go to and say god this is this is how i'm feeling i don't know what to say 
I don't know what words to use. Pray emotionally real prayer. So that's the first thing I notice about Hannah's prayer. The second one this is, is this. Prayer changes from Hannah-focused to God-focused. In this particular prayer, we see a shift. We see a shift. Up until this point, her biggest concern and her biggest desire is to have children because she feels worthless. She's aware that as she gets older, her identity tied up in having children. And so, understandably, her prayer is focused on Hannah. So, in other words, I could imagine her prayer would have been, God, give me a child so I can feel worthwhile. You could imagine that, couldn't you? Otherwise, I'm hopeless. I've got no future. So, in other words, God, give me a child for me. Year after year, that would have probably been her prayer. Give me a child for me. Help me feel valued. Now, that's okay, but you notice the, folk, the, 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 the source of the, the prayer is on me. I'm uncomfortable. I'm unhappy. Give me something to make me happy. But on this particular day, something shifts. And we read this in verse 11 where she said, She made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you'll only look after your servant's misery and remember me. Okay? And not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. What's going on here? Now, to be a priest in Israel, you needed to be from the tribe of Levi. That was the tribe where the priests come from. Now, does that mean that priests can't come from other tribes? Yes, they can. If a particular person is from another tribe, not from the tribe of Levi, and felt called to be a priesthood, they would take a Nazarite vow. And as part of that vow, it would be that you would never cut your hair you will let your hair uh, continue to grow as part of that Nazarite vow we, we, we read this about the story of, of Samson don't we about uh, taking a Nazarite vow no razor would be set on his head and we see the same thing happening here for Hannah she is saying uh, in other words by no razor would, be able, would touch his head is saying I'm dedicating any child that you would give me to you he will become your called person he would become your priest this is what is happening in, in Hannah's prayer can you see now a lot of the time it takes a bit of digging around because culturally this is very different to the, the, the way we grow up but what she's saying here is it's no longer about me any child will be for you. Can you see how significant that is? It's not about, about my value, my worth. It's about dedicating to you. Something shifted. Shifted from being self-focused to God-focused. How do you pray? Think about what you are praying for at the moment. There could be struggles with physical health, could be family, relationships, future, ministry, finance, 
I'm not saying that we should never, ever pray prayers for ourselves. But if our primary motive is self, I think as part of this, God wants to move us from a focus on self to a focus on glorifying God. God desiring, God focused. A move from comfort and a sense of worth and identity to God's glory. I'm going to use another example from Paul that we find in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. You'll probably be aware of, of this particular passage. It's, it's one of my favourites because it, it shows the human side of, of Paul. And we read this um, where Paul is talking about a particular time of his life. And he says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, we don't know what that was. We don't know whether it was physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, or whatever. Okay, But there was this difficulty that, uh, that Paul was enduring. And he said, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said... My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. It's a powerful passage. Can you see in those few verses, the prayer starts with Paul and ends with God. Can you see that? Paul's saying, I'm feeling very uncomfortable. I'm feeling it very difficult. I want you to take this away from me because I'm finding life really tough. And by the time that he gets to the end of this prayer, in a couple of verses later, he's realized that, hang on, my grace, God's grace is sufficient and that in uh, Paul's weakness, God's power will be known. And so Paul comes to the realisation of saying, therefore, if it's all about God's power, I'm going to boast. I'm going to boast about my weakness because more than anything else, I want the, the power of God to be shown through my life. Can you see the shift? Now, what does that, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us? I am uncomfortable. God, make me comfortable to... More than anything else, Heavenly Father, I want your power, your glory, your purposes to be made known in my life. Now, that requires a significant amount of trust because what you're basically saying is a bit like Paul. If you want to take me through the valley, if you want to take me through tough times, I'm willing to do that, but I'm willing to trust you in that. For I know that there is a plan and a purpose in all of that. Because I'm going to boast all the more about my weaknesses or my discomfort or my, 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 my stresses or whatever because ultimately, more than anything else, I want Christ's power and glory to be reflected through my life. You willing to pray that? That's a dangerous prayer. It's a dangerous prayer. But I think God is saying, are you willing to trust me? The third point we see in this is, Hannah experienced peace before God 
answered prayer. Have a look at this, verse 18. She said to the priest, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Now, from what we can read here, years after year after year after year of being depressed and downcast, something shifted on that day to the point where it's recorded that she was no longer downcast. Now, think about it. Was her prayer answered? Her prayer was for a, for a child. Was she suddenly pregnant at that point? I don't think so. Why did her mood change? Why did years of depression suddenly lift? I believe it's because her hope shifted. Her hope shifted. Previously, her hope was in the value of having a child. And then suddenly, her, her hope had shifted to the hope in God alone and His purposes through her life. For us, sometimes prayer may not be answered for a long time, but the confidence we can have is knowing that God is working in and through us for his purposes. The question we've got to ask is, where is our hope? And what do we learn? And so I think there's three applications for this story. Three applications for this story. And the first one is this. God's power begins to work at your point of hopelessness you could just about look at any any story in the old testament or the new testament and one of the common themes of all of this is where is god's power uh, most present and it is generally when people get to the end of their tether would you agree Do you feel hopeless? Maybe regarding your health, your relationships, your money, your future or whatever. There are many stories in the Bible of hopelessness where God's power became known. I mean, really, even our salvation is based on that, isn't it? Really, when we become a child of God, it's only when we realize I don't have the capacity to save my own life. And at some point earlier in life or later in life we come to the point of really i need to surrender my life because i am hopeless i have no hope and no future outside of christ so i need to put my trust in him so therefore god's power begins to work at your point of hopelessness i need a savior because i am hopeless does, does that make sense and so many other times of our life our hope needs to shift Second point is this. God will use your suffering, but don't assume you can decipher how. If you're going through a difficult time and it appears that God's not answering your prayer or it's just been going on and on and on, be confident to know that God will use your suffering, but you will quite possibly never know how. No matter what you're going through, you can't, need, you can't work it out and you need to trust him. Now think about this. Hannah, at this moment, all she's really wanting is, is a child. She gets to the point where she says, I'm going to hand all of this over to God and I'm going to put it in his hands and I'm going to dedicate whatever may come out of this to him. Out of that prayer, she becomes pregnant. A son, Samuel, Samuel the priest, 
who would be instrumental in ushering in David, the greatest king of Israel, whose lineage would lead to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, saviour of the world. Hannah. God used Hannah as part of all of that. Do you get where I'm going with all of that? Now, here's the other deal. We don't know when Hannah died, but I'm sure that Hannah you know, got pregnant, had a son, Samuel, Samuel grew, and at some point Hannah died. She wouldn't have seen all of the other amazing things that God would have done in and through her dedication of this child to God, Samuel, and, and through that to David, through that to, certainly to the Messiah. She would have had no idea from the days that she lived. Does that make sense? So what is it that God is desiring to do in you that's not just going to solve the immediate problem that you're in right now, but what he's wanting to do in you is reveal his glory and his purposes that could outlive your life. Wow. We don't know. We certainly can't decipher that. And once again, we just need to trust so for us in hopeless situations, God can bring an amazing outcome. Maybe in our lifetime, maybe not in our lifetime, maybe, not, maybe for generations. And here's my third point. Third point, hold on. Pretty simple one to finish with, isn't it? Just hold on. As you read Hannah's situation and, and, and you're overlaying your own life and you're going, wow, my life doesn't seem to be accounting for anything same with Hannah. I just need to trust. I just want to, I want to develop in my prayer life a trust that it's not about me and it's about you, Lord God. My weakness, I feel very, very weak. But as Paul said, I'm actually going to boast about my weakness. I'm going to boast about how weak I am. Because what I'm really doing is I'm, I'm pointing to the power of Christ that's doing anything worthwhile in me. This is about God's story. And it's ultimately about God's glory. So I wonder where you find yourself in, in that story. A story about Hannah. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see how that story develops through to the birth of Samuel and then through to uh, the story of, of David in which God continues to show his glory and his purposes. And so today, as we come to the conclusion of um, this sermon, I want to point us back to Jesus. Jesus who came about eternally God, his life on earth, story about a woman and an impossible birth. Another one of those stories. And yet Jesus, very different. He came to basically make things right. And by the shedding of his blood on the cross and the breaking of his body, he gave the opportunity for people to come to be known as his children. And so I invite you, uh, if you worship regularly with us, but if also if you're visiting, if you love Jesus, 
you're welcome to come and, and join us as we take a cup and take a biscuit and we're reminded again through the story of Hannah Samuel David through the lineage of David through the Jesus the saviour of the world who would come to make all things right and as we eat and drink today my prayer is that we would be able to like Paul boast about our weaknesses and say we don't have it all together we don't necessarily have prayers that are automatically answered we haven't got the the ability to name it and claim it but we continue to trust and hold on to the promises of God and our trust is that as we grow into all of that it'll be less about us and more about him and we trust whatever glory happens will be for him and not for us and so today in the same way we identify with Christ for what he did for us he is glorified and we identify with his glory will you pray with me heavenly father we thank you for your word we pray that by your spirit you will continue to speak life to us that you would draw us from just thinking about self and comfort and our own intrinsic value and to seek nothing more than you glorified through our lives. So we thank you for your son Jesus, the shedding of his blood, the breaking of his body as a sacrifice for us that we might know, really know, the Saviour of the world. We thank you for this precious gift. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.